Father, as we come this morning, God, uh, first of all, we want to declare we know who You are and there is none other than You. And You have given Your Son for us. And when He arose and uh, came back to heaven to set at Your right hand, You gave Your Spirit. You promised that for us. We have much to be thankful for. And we look forward to eternity that uh, is going to happen for us because of what You have done through Your Son. Thank You that we can think on those things in the world that we live in. It's, it's tough. So today we're asking that You'll open up our hearts and our minds to Your Word. And also, God, that You will give us discernment because You Yourself have uh, told us that uh, wolves will come, false teachers will come, People will come to try to water down your word or get people off track. Protect us as a church family. Protect us in our hearts and minds that we will balance things, test things against your word. And we love you and pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Danny. From the very beginning of the New Testament, the authority and the authenticity of the Scripture has been questioned. People wondered when they would receive a letter if the person that wrote it was really the person that they believed to have been the author. They questioned it from the very beginning. And that's why we have passages of Scripture like this in the book of Galatians. If you want to turn there with me, really important for you to look at all of this for yourself today. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle Paul is the author of this particular letter, but look at what he says. Look closely at it. This is Galatians 6, verse 11. See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? It was largely believed that Paul had a problem with his eyesight, and so he wrote with large letters, and, and it kind of looked like scribbled writing because Paul couldn't see very well. Well, in the midst of his letter to the church in Galatia, he's saying, look at the handwriting. I write it with my own hand. A lot of times they would dictate Scripture to someone else. They were called amanuensis in Scripture. They would dictate Scripture to an amanuensis who would write everything down, and then the letters would be sent along their way. But Paul knew that it was important at times to make sure that it was written by his own hand so that people could trust the authenticity of the letter. He would mention the same type of thing in Philemon, chapter 1, or chapter 1, it only has one chapter. Philemon, verse 19. Why don't you turn over there with me? It's an often overlooked book, and it shouldn't be. You'll find it right after Titus. In verse 19, Paul says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. And that last part kind of captures the meaning of the letter. But Paul was saying to Philemon, I write this with my own hand. You can trust that this letter is from me. That's exactly what he was saying. I write this in my own hand. Don't let anybody try to tell you that this didn't come from me. And that was during the real-time writing of Scripture. Since then, people have questioned it over and over and over again. And that really should not surprise us. 
Because those types of questions have existed literally from the beginning of time. From the beginning of time. One of the most effective tools that the devil has in keeping people away from Scripture, away from Jesus, out of a relationship with God, is doubt. And he uses it well. Let me show you what I'm talking about at the beginning of time. This is found in the book of Genesis. Not surprising when we're talking about the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Speaking of the devil, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Look at how the serpent, the devil, planted a seed of doubt about the authority and the authenticity of the words of God. All he had to do was say this, did God really say? Did God really say? And from there, doubt as it is attached to authority and authenticity has spread like wildfire. So today when we hear people doubt the authority and the authenticity of the Bible, utilizing all kinds of different arguments, or they will bring into question certain doctrines and teachings of the Bible, it should not surprise us. Because King Solomon would actually make this statement. There's nothing new under the sun. This isn't new. Any argument that people would bring towards you about the authority and the authenticity of the Bible, causing you to even question portions of it, if not the whole of it, that ain't new. That's the best way to say it. So we have to figure out what our defense is personally, as well as how we help other people battle through the issues that come as a direct result of doubt associated to authority and authenticity of Scripture and what God's Word actually says. Thankfully, Peter helps us do that. Peter helps us understand how to go about those types of discussions. He also helps us understand how to build our own protective walls against false teachers in our lives. We're going to get right into that this morning as we continue on in our study of First and Second Peter. We're getting really close to the end, and he has gained a lot of momentum. What we are about to look at today in the book of 2 Peter appears to be the Apostle Unplugged because he just gets right to the heart of a matter. It is like Peter is unbridled and he is just being Peter in what he is about to say. So I want you to listen to it understanding that Peter was quick-tempered at times. Peter was a rash individual. Peter was reactionary. And Peter was spirit filled. And so the Holy Spirit seems to use all of those things that are at the heart of who Peter is to bring about some really 
pointed teaching. And all we have to do is pay attention to it. We're going to break down a long run of Scripture this morning, but I want you to see it in a way that you can use it. So let's just get right to it. Let's go to the book of 2 Peter together. 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He doesn't mince many words. Listen to how he starts. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain." So let's just stop here real quick and listen to what Peter's saying. This isn't groundbreaking information from the apostle, but it is foundational. Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses. He was an eyewitness. All of the apostles were eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were there. But to the baptism of Jesus, all the apostles were there. And they heard the voice of the Lord as he spoke about his son. They saw it. They heard it. And then they shared it. There is nothing more powerful in Christianity than a testimony. Your testimony, someone else's testimony. When we talk about what we have experienced with God, there is power in that. And as the apostles shared their eyewitness accounts, their first person accounts of what they have seen and heard, there was power in it. There was power in it. Nobody was going to tell them who Jesus was. They knew Him. They knew Him, and they shared Him with everyone that would listen. They did that both in person and in writing. So we know that we are operating on a foundational level from eyewitness accounts. But I want you to listen to what he says after this, because he's about to take that a lot deeper. So dial in close, verse 19, here we go. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see how Peter took this idea of being an eyewitness, a first-person witness to the things that he saw, the things that he heard, so that he could share them, and then went deeper in it? He went deeper. What I mean by that is actually captured with these words. And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. Now what in the world is he talking about? Well, the Bible is actually going to answer that question for us by showing us what he's talking about. And along the way, it will disarm people that come to you and say, we cannot trust the authority and authenticity of the Bible because it only comes from men. Men wrote it, so it cannot be trusted. Well, I'm going to show you why that argument is wrong, starting with what Peter just said. They had something more fully confirmed within them. Now, if you're a Bible mapper, 
What I'm about to give you is one of those things that you would do well to map in Scripture so that you will always be prepared for this discussion. Bible mapping is very simple. You just start by putting at the front cover of your Bible these words. You just write, Authenticity and Authority of Scripture. And then underneath that, you write the four passages we're about to look at. But then, next to each of those passages, you write where you go next. And then you have a map that you can walk through. You would do well to map this because this is a common, popular argument. We cannot trust Scripture because it was written by men. In order to lay all the groundwork that we need to for this discussion and to get some context, we're going to start in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So in your Bible map, in the cover of your Bible where you're writing authority and authenticity, you write 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and then you turn there. 2 Timothy 3, 16. The Apostle Paul, and this is of the utmost importance, the Apostle Paul is the one who writes these words. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now look how he starts. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations say all Scripture is God-breathed. For someone like me, I don't need to go anywhere else. That is all I need to hear. All Scripture is God-breathed. That settles the matter. I don't need anything else. But there are a lot of people that need more. So I'm going to show you how this God-breathed thing worked so that you can help other people understand it. And if you're one of those individuals that needs a little bit more, you're about to get it. So in your Bible, next to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, write John 1, 51. And then that will follow your map. Go back to the cover of your Bible, write John 1, 51, underneath 2 Timothy 3, 16, and you're starting to see the map build. What you're going to find in the Gospel of John is an explanation of how God breathed the things that the apostles wrote about. This is the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 51. Nathaniel has just been called to be a, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. Earlier on in this passage, Jesus, when he met Nathaniel, he would say that he was a man without deceit. Nathaniel was a skeptic at first because he heard that Jesus had come from Nazareth. And he would actually say to those standing around him, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? And then he meets Jesus. And Jesus sets the record straight for him. But then he says this in verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So now John records what Jesus said when he would call the apostles to him. In essence, what he's saying is, you're going to see things that no one else is going to see. You are going to have things more fully confirmed within you and then you're going to need to tell other people about it. I'm going to give you something that I'm not going to give to everyone. 
You're going to see heaven opened and you're going to see things happening in that realm that other people are not going to be privileged to. It's going to give you authority. That's how God breathed out on the apostles. But then, watch what John says in 1 John. This is the first of his letters. You have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John near the end of the New Testament. 1st John chapter 1, verse 1. So next to John 1, verse 51, write 1st John 1, 1 through 4. And John writes these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You can underline both uses of the word manifest. The first one says that Jesus was made manifest among all mankind. The second word carries the implication in the original language that there were deeper things made manifest to the apostles through the work of the Holy Spirit. God was breathing out on them. And then John says, and we've written these things so that our joy may be complete. We wrote it down so that you would have access to this. It's almost like he wrote that to us. He wrote it down so that 2,000 years later, we would have access to what they experienced, what was made manifest to them, what was breathed out for them, so that we would have access to Scripture and be able to trust the authority and the authenticity of it. Now, we have Paul's writing in 2 Timothy then we have John's writing in two different places. But then you add to it Peter's writing. And we read this just a few minutes ago. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I love how he says it's more fully confirmed. He is talking, Peter is talking about a special work of the Holy Spirit that granted to them what we hold in our hands and call the Bible. Now, here's the thing. You have Paul talking about it. You have John talking about it. And you have Peter talking about it. You have three different witnesses. You have three different witnesses that are all saying the exact same thing. Thing. God made manifest to us the work of the Holy Spirit. and We wrote it down so that our joy will be complete and so will yours. It's the authority and the authenticity of the Word of God. Man, that is cool. Apparently there's no other Bible nerds in here. Man, that is cool. That's how God did it through the Holy Spirit. Heaven opened. 
They saw angels ascending and descending and, and they got to see things and experience things that none of us have seen or experienced, but they wrote about it and there were points in it where God said, now you won't be able to write about this or ever speak about this. I won't allow that because it's too much for everybody else. That happened in the Apostle Paul's life and, and he gives us just a little glimpse of that, nothing really more than that. God wouldn't permit him to say some things that he saw, but the rest of it, was written down for us. And that settles it. So when somebody says to you, we can't trust the Word of God because it was written by man, if you can walk them along that map, then your easy response is, your argument holds no water at all. Because God has shown us through three different witnesses how He breathed out His Word so that we can trust the authority and the authenticity. Your argument isn't with men, it's with God. Take it up with Him. It's with God. This is how I process it in my mind. As Christians, we don't get the privilege of choosing what the Bible says. If God says it, that settles it. Even in today's debate over the authority of Scripture, we are reminded that when God said it, it was settled for eternity. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. The paraphrase of this is, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And we don't get the privilege of getting into even some doctrines today and saying, well, I don't like that. We have to say, God said it, that settles it. And until the Lord returns, it's settled for eternity. And I don't believe that even after He returns, He's going to change it. It's settled for eternity. All we have to do is stand on it. Man, there's great peace, great protection, great safety in that. I just trust the Word of God. I trust the Word of God. And if somebody wants to argue the authority and the authenticity, then here's my encouragement to you. Tell them to take it up with Him. Because that's really where it all begins. But we might say, what about pastors and teachers? Well, for me as a, a preacher and a teacher, I lay this passage over my responsibility and over the Word of God all the time. This is found in Psalm 104, first four verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. God better be in the midst of any preacher and teacher's life. Because the Bible says he makes them a flaming fire, which means he puts a passion for certain things within preachers and teachers. And for me, for 30 some odd years now, that passion has burned. And I can tell you this, for 30 some odd years I have thought, if that passion goes out, I need to do something else. I need to do something else. And if I'm not directing people to the authority of the Word of God and the authenticity of the Word of God and standing on the Word of God, I need to do something else. And if for some reason that passion dissipates and it goes away, I pray that I will have strength of character to go do that. Maybe I'll choose to, to follow another line that I know I would be extremely good at, equipment operating. I'm going to go do that. <laughs> Heavy equipment. If we lose that passion, there's a problem. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So, 
We can see the authority, the authenticity of the Word of God. If somebody is standing on the authority and the authenticity of the Word of God, and we can look and know that what they're teaching is consistent with the whole of it, then we know that we can follow and we can trust. But what about people that the Bible would refer to as false teachers? What about them? Well, Peter, in his unplugged diatribe, and it's a beautiful one, addresses that. Let's go to back. Second Peter chapter 2. In fact, the bulk of this entire chapter is given to false prophets and teachers. Listen to how he starts. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. See what I mean? This is, this is Peter unplugged. This is the apostle unbridled. He just laid it out in, in really no uncertain terms. There were false teachers in real time as Scripture was being written, and there are false teachers 2,000 years later. It seems like, even though he was writing this 2,000 years ago, he had our world, our culture, our society in mind as he wrote about this. I like the way John MacArthur addresses this issue. Take a look. There is nothing more offensive to God than the distortion of His truth or of His word. To falsify the facts about who God is and what He said, even promoting Satan's lies as if they were God's truth, is the basest form of hypocrisy. With eternity at stake, it is hard to believe that anyone would intentionally deceive other people, teaching them something that is spiritually catastrophic. Yet such atrocious arrogance is exactly what characterizes the pseudo-ministries of false teachers. Well, John's kind of unplugged too. And he's following along that exact same line. There is nothing worse in the Lord's eyes than somebody that teaches things and preaches things that leads people away from truth and away from relationship with Him. God doesn't abide it. And we see that all through Scripture. You can go a lot of different places and see it, Old Testament and New. God has no use for it. Here's some places that you could study on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. God's going to talk about false prophets. You can go to Matthew 24, verse 11. God's going to talk about it. You can go to Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus is going to talk about it. And then you can go to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15. You know what? Let's do that. I'm just going to put it up here on the screen. Look at what Scripture says. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Wow. Wow. Scripture's pretty pointed about this as well. God has no use for these false teachers, and God will deal with them. That's not our responsibility. That's God's. God will deal with them. Our responsibility is to hold to truth. God will deal with the rest. You want to know how we know that? Because He gives us different examples of people that He has dealt with. Let's go back to Second Peter. This is chapter 2, verse 4. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So God actually gives us in Scripture three different examples of how he deals with heresy. He shows it to us so that we can make no mistake about it. God takes this very seriously. But with that, He also takes very seriously the separation of the ungodly from the godly. The separation of the unrighteous from the righteous. And Peter helps us understand that when he says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God can separate it out. He understands the, the godly from the ungodly. The Lord takes it very seriously. He takes that very seriously. And we just need to trust that the Lord sorts it out. But here's what I really want you to know this morning. As much as God takes very seriously this idea of false prophets and false teachers, as much as he takes that very seriously, what he is most concerned with are those that they are leading astray. That's where God's heart really drifts to. And Peter helps us understand that. Join me in verse 10, last part of it. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. Whereas angels, through great, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice the unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now he starts out this section by talking again about these false teachers and you see the passion with which he does it. But look at verse 14. We'll put it up on the screen. Take a look at it again. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his certain... Nope, that's the wrong one. Let's go on verse 14, Chelsea. Sorry, I was reading thinking this isn't right. 
You'll see it with the souls part. There you go. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Now, Peter could have easily written this verse just like this. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. But he didn't. He added this in the midst of it. They entice unsteady souls. And God cares about unsteady souls. Now there is a word in the midst of that that is really confusing to a lot of people. The word very simply is souls. For a lot of folks, there is a belief that the soul is this thing that is deep inside of us that seems to just hold something kind of mysterious. And when we die, our soul goes to heaven and it floats around until God gives it a body again and it's, it's kind of this weird understanding. But that's really not what the soul is. Dallas Willard has a great way of explaining it. He does it with some concentric circles. Take a look at this. The soul is made up of the will, the mind, the body, and the soul is wrapped around those three things. The soul isn't something that is deep inside of us. Our soul is wrapped around our will, our mind, and our body. Now, Dallas Willard, with John Ortberg's help, would describe that this way. The soul is the deepest part of you, and it is the whole person. Your soul is what integrates your will, your intentions, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and your conscience, and your body, your face, body language, and actions in a single life. A soul is a healthy, well-ordered when there is harmony between these three entities. That's your soul. And Satan is after him. And he's using false teachers to accomplish that. And false prophets in the Old Testament that would bring wrong messages to try to attack your will and your mind and your body so that he could have your heart, so that he could have your soul, the very essence of who you are, the thing that holds you together. That's what he's after. And so God, in all of his great concern, helps us through passages like this in Second Peter to know how to stand against that. And that really is the big question. How do we sort out? How do we sort out false teachers from real teachers, from the right teachers? Well, there's two steps in it. Here they are. You pay attention to the motive and to the message. You pay attention to the motive and the message. Let's take the first one. We're going to stay in Second Peter. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, their gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and to overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb has or says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So you pay close attention to the motive of the teacher. Listen again to verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What is it that overcomes a person? For somebody who's really wanting to teach and preach the Word of God, they should be overcome by evangelism and discipleship. That should be the very thing that drives everything they do. Evangelism and discipleship. Loving God, loving others. That ought to be the message that you hear all the time. But when you're taking a look at the motive of somebody and you really get into saying where do they overcome by, you may find money, power, greed, pride, arrogance. In this particular case, pride and arrogance are the things that he's calling out so that we don't miss it at all. If that's the motive, if that's what they're overcome by, and you see that, then red flags need to fly. And right after you've looked at the motive, then pay close attention to the message. What is the message that they are bringing? John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, this wonderful teaching, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John says you test the message. You test the message. You know the motive. Now test the message. You test it against the Word of God. Does it match up to the Word of God, the will of God, the character of God? And if the message matches all three of those things... Green flag it. Hey, that fits. That fits. You test the message. So you test first the motive, second the message. And now you have some pretty good understanding. Is this a real teacher of the Word of God or is this a false teacher? Test the motive, test the message. And you test it against the Word of God. And here's the cool thing that is tucked away in everything that John just said. Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have the Holy Spirit to help. So you trust the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit to help. So you trust the Holy Spirit. So if you are testing the motive and you're testing the message, but you're still confused, then you ask God. And the Holy Spirit will guide you. And you trust Oh, this is important because what is at stake are souls and maybe your own. Maybe your own. This has been going on since the beginning of time. So we have to be prepared to deal with this issue. We have to be prepared. Thankfully, in the New Testament, God gave the church and to the church, God gave elders. And elders are tasked with the job of watching over the doctrine of the church 
And so if the elders who are tasked with a job like that are saying, hey, we have entrusted these teachers, then you have another level of protection. And God knew we were going to need it. But before we even rely on that, we have within us the Holy Spirit and we have personal responsibility. And so we need to accept that personal responsibility in all of this discussion to make sure that the right protections are in place. And let me show you one as we close this morning. This is found in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. God says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So what we learn from that, and we still know it today, is you have to know the Word of God. And thankfully, we have it available to us to know the Word of God. Then you can test any spirit, any message, you can test it against God's Word. So make sure that you immerse yourself in Scripture in such a way that it sticks. And today, in the year 2023, it is so easy. You can get apps on your phone that make it so that you wake up every day to Scripture. Read the Scripture that pops up on your phone every morning and let it sink in. Meditate on it throughout the course of the day so that it finds a home in you. And tomorrow morning when a new verse pops up, let it sink in. Immerse yourself in the Word of God so that you can always test the message. Oh, we need people that will teach. We need people that will disciple. We need people that will take us deeper into the Word of God. No question about that. And I don't say that because I am a preacher teacher. I say that because I have preachers and teachers in my life that I need that take me deeper in the Word of God. So we all need that. But we always have to be watching and making sure that the message is right. By the way, I ordered that test the motive and then the message the right way because sometimes we're human and we make mistakes. So you look at the motive. Maybe there's a mistake within the message. That's okay. Let's correct the mistake. The motive is what matters the most. So you pay attention to the motive and then the message but you immerse yourself in the Word of God so that you can test both. And it'll lead you into a relationship with the Lord like you've never experienced. My encouragement to you this week is to start now. Start now. If you need help finding apps on your phone where Scripture will be sent to you every day because you don't know how to study on your own, man, we'll help you. There's easy steps. We'll help you. But if you just want to get into the Word of God, open up your Bible. Start reading it and let it sink in and find a home so that you are walking in a relationship with God that is never in question and never in jeopardy. Why don't you stand with us? We'll pray together. Father in heaven, I went longer than I wanted to today. Thanks for that extra hour of sleep. But I pray, Lord, that the things that we talked about will resonate for all of us. Because as Deanie said earlier, there are wolves that creep in. You warned us about it. We've seen it. So Lord, help us always be on guard as we grow in You. I pray, Lord, right now for those that 
have kept you at arm's length, not sure whether they could trust the authority and the authenticity of the Bible, I pray that that will change today. And that they'll trust it. Seeing that three different witnesses have verified how you gave it to us. It's supernatural in nature and wonderful in practice. So I pray, Father, that they'll take a step closer to you. I pray, Lord, that they'll take a step into the baptistry and they'll leave doubt there and they'll stand with you forever. Surrounded by you and filled by you. I pray that'll be the case. For others that are under attack, I pray that they'll find great protection. And for those that need to pray about those things, I pray they find great boldness and respond to the invitation to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.